0: Welcome to the Introverted Doctor Podcast, dedicated to uncovering myths, mistakes, and misconceptions that hold healthcare professionals back from having better interpersonal relationships with their patients and colleagues. In each episode, we focus on different aspects of a doctor's and other allied healthcare professionals' life, such as communication techniques, mindset, routines, habits, and behaviors with the goal to show how to eliminate anxiety, trip ups, and unwelcomed results that comes from ineffective communications. I'll reveal research routines and we will have some amazing guests in future podcasts that will help shine light on a particular topic. At the end of this podcast, I'll summarize the key tips so that you can apply or reapply them right away to start living your best life at work, home and play. To subscribe to this podcast, please click on the link below or download it on your favorite podcast app, such as Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I'm your host, Dr. Lalit Chavla. Take a listen and join me. Dina Moitoso is a registered psychotherapist and holds a master's degree in psychology with a specialization in traumatic bereavement. For over 20 years, Dina has provided individual and family counseling to those grieving the loss of a loved one. I first met Dina when she gave a workshop about grief, trauma and death, and I was so impressed by the knowledge and stories and strategies she shared in that workshop that I knew I needed to interview her for this podcast. She is such an eloquent speaker and teacher. The interview was rich and had so much content and information that I made it into a two-part series. In the first section, Dina talks about a car accident that led to her tragic personal loss and how she almost died and how that event led her to becoming a grief counselor. I also get a little personal about the loss of my mother who died from metastatic breast cancer um Dina has so many tools and strategies and things that really help people understand about grief post-traumatic stress suicide and how to navigate the emotions and behaviors around those topics In this first section, we talk about how men and women grieve differently, how that affects their relationships. We talk about the whole task of grieving and the physiology of grief and why it affects us physically and why people have trouble sleeping and how to correct that. We also talk about how it differs when a child, teenager, adult or elderly person grieves and why those differences happen. There was so much in this conversation and if you've ever suffered from a personal loss, or you know someone who has, you will find these episodes incredibly helpful. So without further ado, here's our great conversation. Dina, I am so excited to have you here today, and thank you for doing this.
1: My pleasure.
0: Now, I want to ask you, you're a grief counselor. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you get into that because I don't think it's somebody something that somebody decides at one point Hey, I'll be a grief counselor I was wondering if you could share with me how you how you got into this profession
1: yeah no you're you're so right in fact it's very uncommon to find somebody who specializes specifically on grief most agencies have a broad range of approaches to um, the counseling experience Um, but yeah I think my story is a little bit unique Um, so uh, in my previous life I used to be a special ed teacher working with developmentally delayed children Um, and so my role was a resource teacher because I would work with families and so on and so it was a a wonderful career and then one day um, on a Saturday morning as I was driving home from the market with my kids um, somebody went through a stop sign and crashed into our car and it created a catastrophic Uh, experience where my three-year-old daughter did not survive um, and it completely shattered my world Um, so I knew that I was no longer a teacher I didn't even know who I was and so as I healed from my injuries and continued to ask the question what is this life all about and who am I now Um, And this was in the late 80s, so I I, I failed to find the answers, so I decided to become a student of myself and uh, went back to school and took a lot of sociology courses, took a lot of psychology courses, took a lot of writing courses. I started off with a writing course um, so that I could kind of find some Critical feedback to what I was feeding, to, to what I was feeling, and um, and not with the intent of ever becoming a grief counselor, but rather with the intent of trying to figure out who I was. In the in through that process, as I developed more and more confidence, I um, started up a bereaved uh, support group for parents grieving a child, and um, and that was exactly what i needed at that time to be with other parents a long story a little longer um, the funeral home that gave the space for us to meet asked me if i would work for them and as i was continuing to study myself i found myself leaning towards the courses that gave me the answers and a little longer. This story turns out to be that I became a grief counselor.
0: <laughs> well, I took your workshop, that the mm. one-day workshop, and I learned so much in that one day mm. that um, it was amazing. That the The science and the research. It was clear that you you knew you knew your material, mm. so which was very impressive to me. Um, I'm sorry about your loss of your three-year-old daughter. That is probably the most feared thing I think any parent would have: is Mm. to to lose a child. Um, I I don't really want to. I don't want to dwell on this too much. If if, but were you were were you in uh, like how bad were your injuries? Were you?
1: well, my injuries were catastrophic, so I was the one who was not supposed to survive. But um, back in 1988, the diagnostic tools that we have were not as sophisticated as they are today, so her bla- her brain bleed w- went undetected, and so she succumbed to a head injury um, within 48 hours <coughs> of the accident. Yeah.
0: I'm sure we could go into how... A now, for you to process all that the one thing we hear people talk about grieving mourning and bereavement hmm. are they the same thing or, or how would uh, how, could you define that better
1: sure actually I, I must admit that it's actually the work of Alan, Dr. Alan Woolfelt he's um, drawn our attention to language as a way to kind of guide us through this process and so I'll give credit to him for reminding us that mourning really is the outward expression of this profound feeling of hurt and loss and brokenness. And we often... Um, kind of will see that in in that initial period so those first four seasons of the year where there are so many firsts that people um, experience and so there's this outward demonstration of that pain and what happens is that over the course of time that outward expression becomes internalized and that's what we begin to call the grieving process so it's a more personal intimate experience of integrating this loss Um, and then the word bereavement is really kind of the state of being bereft Um, and i i always Appreciate the root words, and so, for instance, uh, the German root word for bereavement is to be robbed. And so, this is how we have these three terms that, again, can help to guide us right Uh, there is a bereavement process that a family goes through um, and within that they will go through a mourning phase where there will be outward demonstrations and they will be cues for us to respond to and then as they enter into the grieving process it's about us recognizing that they're figuring out how to walk with this um, and it may not be obvious to other people because they start to go grocery shopping and they start to do their laundry well, but make no mistake—they're grieving on the inside, right? So those tears accumulate within,
0: right? That's yeah, that's 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 true. Now, is there? I think I remember you talking about there's traditional versus contemporary grief theory. Mm-hmm. Could you remind me about that?
1: Sure, sure. Well, I think, um, you know, I think most people could almost sing the five stages of grief um, set out by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, right? And um, and so it was in 1969 that um, she was doing a significant uh, research on the dying process. And within that, she came up with the five stages of the dying process. Now, at that time, there really wasn't a lot written about grief, aside from, you know, Freud's, you know, 1931 kind of submission of of the melancholy phase. We really didn't know what to do with um, bereavement. And people started to recognize, you know, denial, anger, Bargaining, depression, acceptance. Hey, I go through all of those things when I'm grieving. And so they adopted those stages as guideposts, if you will. Um, and so th- that was the beginning of a conversation, and it really took off because, to be fair, I think we all like to kind of think about nice, tidy formulas that have a beginning and an end, mm-hmm. and it kind of created that. And so the impression, I think, that kind of... Uh, led to was that grief is kind of somewhat orderly that it it does have a beginning and that it does have an end Um, and and so you know that's kind of the song that everybody started to sing and I'll be even honest like I know that there are still some courses at university levels in which they're still teaching grief from a five-stage perspective I know that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross never really intended it to be that way. She's written books since then to kind of help people understand that. But um, it's hard to kind of undo something that people have kind of adopted, right? I guess uh, to kind of get to the point in terms of the traditional perspective, it was highly influenced by that stage model. And the suggestion was that that there are things that we have to go through, there are steps that we have to go through, but ultimately we come to an end. Mm. Um, and and so that's the traditional perspective on grief. It also kind of occurred during a time in which, you know, after World War II, there were many people in this country, in our neighborhoods, who were grieving multiple people. And so... Um, because it, there was major casualties in those wars. And so it was really kind of hopeful to kind of feel like, okay, so we're going to get to the end of this. Um, and and so that's part of why we adopted this feeling like, you know, well, well, we'll get over it, we'll get past it, life is for the living, and just do that work, follow these steps, and you'll get to the other side of it. And so that's kind of like the academic perspective, mm-hmm. because the soldiers on the, in the trenches, the people who were grieving, the people who were walking through this, quickly found out that, oh, I thought I went through the anger stage a month ago, why am I angry again? And so they started to realize, I'm doing something wrong, or I have to keep my mouth shut because people will tell me I'm doing something wrong. And so the, conti- the, the, the traditional perspective was um, scripted, but it wasn't very humanistic, if you will. So then gradually, as we get to the contemporary approach to grief, it is about realizing, okay, grief is not tidy. It's actually rather messy. And it doesn't have an end because love doesn't have an end. (laughs) And so, um, you know, it was many of the contemporary writers that started to talk about continuing bonds like i'm i'm a big fan of of thomas attic who really kind of wrote a book um called um oh that the, uh, has,
0: the heart of grief thank you
1: yeah. <laughs> you know that because i missed that one too um anyways, the heart of grief and and he really kind of inspired us to kind of considered the relationship that continues when a person has died and and so um you know the momentum was about continuing bonds and honoring the relationship and honoring the legacy of those who have passed Um, it's it's about recognizing that we have the capacity to live with loss
0: did he say um i have learned grief is another form of love or yes yeah yeah, yeah. yeah yeah and I always thought yeah that was so nicely put mm-hmm. I learned that grief is another form of love mm-hmm. and um, when my, my mom she died at 51 52 uh, from breast cancer and um, I was a young man you know in my 20s and I remember it was it was a very confusing time for me. I was in medical school, just mm-hmm. in there, and um, and I think for a while, if I were to be honest, I, I think I was confused about what grief really meant. Mm-hmm. And then when I heard that expression, "grief is another form of love," mm. uh, it, it changes grief. Otherwise. It, it can sound very. It can be very heavy on the heart. Mm-hmm. So, I thought that was very useful. Mm-hmm. Now, men and women. The one thing that re- you really pointed out that really struck me in the workshop was that men and women grieve differently. Mm-hmm. And I can totally, uh, I, I certainly understand what it's like. I know what I did. Yeah. Um, can you talk to that? How, how do they grieve differently?
1: Yeah. Well. It, <sighs> men and women are different, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? We, our physiology is different. <laughs> our, um, you know, we're just different. And so it makes sense that at some level we have to accept the fact that there are different styles in terms of how to manage emotions. Now, having said this, it's not an absolute, right? Because there are plenty of men who have feminized qualities and there are plenty of women who have masculinized masculine qualities so if we but for the sake of this conversation if we can just kind of use those terms male and female or um, masculine and and feminine feminine,
0: energy yeah, yeah
1: correct and then find where the that people fit in within that spectrum right but essentially masculine grief tends to be instrumental um, so by that it's referred to that many men um, are action-oriented they're not necessarily the talkers they're not necessarily the processors the thinkers they're more the action-oriented uh, style and so when I think about the many men that I have worked with over the years um, yes indeed They're able to kind of find the narratives to express what they're feeling, but they need to also physically express the emotion that they're experiencing. I remember years ago, I thought, you know, I'll I'll put men together and form a support group. I was the one doing most of the talking, right? (laughs) Because because that's just not what comes more natural for men. Mm -hmm. And so... You know their feedback was you know this would work really well if we could just kind of all find a cabin Mm -hmm. chop wood all day and then talk Ah. right and so um they tend to kind of focus on actions and and getting to the bottom of things so if there's been an accident uh, masculine grief has a tendency of wanting to know how did this happen why did this happen get to the logistics of things Um, and that's how those emotions are expressed whereas Feminine grief is more kind of process-oriented, more talkative, more um, working through emotions. And uh, at the risk of sounding stereotypical, you know, the reality is little girls are kind of given tea sets to start that process of talking through things. And we continue on that throughout our lives, so it comes natural for us to talk, to be expressive, to find words to, that somehow... Define the expression, the feeling, and many m- men find it difficult to find the words.
0: Well, I find that's where there can be a lot of conflict between men and women. Uh, you know, if they're in the relationship, there there's been a, a loss of, say, one or the other's uh, partner. Like, I mean, say, a father figure or mother figure. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the men that I've seen, they. They're like, you know, I don't know why is my wife, you know, she, you know why does not she get on with it? And mm-hmm. and I think there's that misconception about. Correct me if I'm wrong, but grief, the timeline of grieving is it varies for people and how we do it. So it 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 just varies. And
1: well, it I, it, it does. But in addition to that, there's other factors that you're kind of highlighting. And <clears throat> one of them particularly if it's husband and wife and they're grieving a child or they're grieving for uh, an elderly parent or a sibling, um, husband and wives take turns they can't both go into the pit at the same time, right? Oh, yeah. And so because, you know, if you look at systems theory, if they both went into the pit, nothing would function. And so without a contract, without stating it out loud, there's this kind of natural turn-taking where if one person is in the pit, the other one stands guard and they support. So that that's kind of one of the elements that can be confusing um, for within couples. The other one, again, at the risk of being stereotypical, um, for many men, there's still a caveman component, a, a part of their personality, which is, I'm here to fix, I'm here to protect, I'm here to help. And when that partner is broken, and they can't do anything to protect that or to kind of fix that, there's a frustration And so that's part of the reason why some men have such a difficult time seeing their spouse suffer, because they can't fix it. Whereas, as you probably know, for many women, they can be in the hurt. They can be in the puddle and know that they don't have to fix it. But it's a natural instinct for men to want to try to
0: fix that. So what would a, say, a hurting female, uh, Mm -hmm. would she just want her husband what what can she ask from her husband or male just partner just to be present just in the pain present. just yeah. to
1: be present in the pain it's uh, it's not it's not easy to see somebody suffering but um, that's ultimately what would be the most helpful but
0: right? what about the reverse say um, if the male figure you know say he lost uh, a, his parent or mm. and he were to always be chopping the wood and and there's been a a bit of a change you know more of a shutdown or close down and that that might cause you know the female partner to feel frustrated and say you know you need to talk to somebody or you need to get some help Mm -hmm. but they don't does that happen
1: it does but again those are assumptions that maybe are um, not really fair Again, because for some men, it's not the narrative that gets them to a place of healing. For some men, it's about doing. Like, I think about a couple that I worked with, in which, you know, the husband would go into the garage every night. For a year, he would go into the garage and spend hours there. And at the end of that year, he was able to tell his wife, What I've been doing is carving an angel out of a stump of wood.
0: Oh, okay.
1: So, so, um, I, think I, was, I was thinking about another gentleman. Um, he, used to, um, he was a university professor and both of his sons died at the same time. And, um, and uh, what he did is he was working on this tapestry and for a year he would kind of go into his space and he would just work on the tapestry and he created this uh, remarkably huge long work of art but within that tapestry model, he would embed elements about his sons, right? So, and those are examples of how men may not need to kind of find a narrative to work through their emotions, but rather find an activity that makes it feel meaningful. It's a mindful activity, many of these are, but it's meaningful and it's solitary.
0: But what about a, about a couple, though? I mean, it may be hard for say um the female partner to to watch that just the doing you know i would assume that she could feel isolated in the in that like you know why don't you talk to me or and so sometimes are you saying that sometimes they don't need to talk
1: well it's it's really i mean every situation is unique right But I really look forward to the opportunity to meet with couples as soon as possible to give them some clarity on, you know, what are some of the limitations of them being able to support one another. Um, And so when it comes to family systems, they can be very supportive to one another, but they can't do their grief work together. Grief is highly contagious, and that's why we do the turn-taking. That's why we have a tendency of wanting to protect the other person from our own deep sorrow. So couples really benefit from having support or that grief counseling separate from one another, or they can come in and be together during a counseling session so that we can clarify these possible misconceptions and misunderstandings that they give each other the space that they need right? So, um, and and we're talking about that initial period. Then, of course, as time goes by, if we're talking about maybe into the seventh, eighth month, there's a much greater level of tolerance for each other's pain, and they can then begin to talk and to connect. But in the beginning, it's very difficult to tolerate the edginess of this hurt.
0: So does that referred to the task theory you you had talked about. Yes.
1: Yeah, so I guess I'll go back to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and how she developed those five stages, right? And uh, and as I said before, it was the start of a conversation. And that conversation has continued. And there's been lots and lots of work and effort in kind of researching and getting a sense of what is grief and how do we help to support people through this? I tend to lean towards the work of William Warden, and so um, William Warden wrote a relatively insignificant looking book in 1982, and it was entitled um, Counseling for the Bereaved Individuals. Within that, he framed these tasks. And now it always it resonated for me when I thought of the word task because when I think of a task I think about something that you do over and over and over again until you master it right And so then he highlighted the four tasks of grief And the first task and of course they don't go in order but just for the sake of our order. Um, The first task is coming to terms with the reality that this has happened. And at first glance, that kind of seems pretty obvious because people, of course, were present at the funeral. They know that this has happened. Cognitively, they know. However, it feels like there's a long distance between the brain and the heart. (laughs) And so it's not denial, but a very strong sense of disbelief. And so The task of grief is to approach the reality of what has happened in a gentle way repeatedly until it's integrated. So when I, again, thinking about this originally, I used to think, wow, you know, remember the time in which when a person had experienced a loss, there would be like a committee of well-meaning people who would go to their house, clear the closets, clear all the shoes, get rid of all the triggers that would remind them of their loved one because they were trying to spare them from facing those realities. It was well-intentioned, but what William Warden is teaching us is that we have to approach those realities in a gentle way, but we have to face those realities, and it's called grief work. So we're not always working at it, so right like part of, The theory around grief is that we have to kind of also take a break from it, but when you're doing grief work, it's about opening that photo album. It's about opening that closet and touching those clothes. It's about recognizing that now you have to do the blue box. It's all of those reality checks that help us to master it. The second task is experiencing and expressing the emotions that you feel, which again, At first glance, it feels like, well, of course, I cry when I have to cry. But we live in a society that is uncomfortable with emotions. And so it doesn't take long before a bereaved individual discovers that it's not always safe to express. And so William Warden reminds us we have to find those safe places to express, to be true to ourselves. Third task, making adjustments to the environment that reflect the current reality that's a mouthful but ultimately it's about change and it's about realizing that nothing is the same and so even though we try to keep things the same at first because you know sameness is familiarity and familiarity is comfort but over the course of time it just doesn't fit it's like a round peg in a square hole nobody's going to use those shoes at the front door. The slippers that were left beside the bed are going to gain dust. And you might even find that people start to avoid looking at it after a while. And so William Warden really is teaching us we just have to make some adjustments so that it doesn't trick our brain and that it continues to reinforce task number one, which is coming to terms with the reality. So I think about a woman that I worked with and her husband who was an avid gardener, had his gardening boots at the back. And those were precious to her. When she would come in, she would see those gardening boots and they would remind her of her husband. But as time goes by, she noticed that she was avoiding the back room because looking at the boots was painful. And so after some discussion, part of meeting the task work was the result of coming up with an idea to fill them up with dirt, put some plant seed in there, and make them vases in the backyard. Yeah, And so you can see there's a change, but now when she looks at those boots, it doesn't trick the mind into thinking, is he here? Is this just all a nightmare? It's just an honoring of what they stood for.
0: That's, uh, that's, very, uh, that's a, a lovely way to remember and and people Correct.
1: have become really creative at that, right? Like So I think about the industry that's emerging, like people are making beautiful memorial quilts out of T-shirts that their loved ones wore, mm. or they're commissioning somebody to create uh, a, a teddy bear out of the sweaters that their loved one had. And it's just about transforming something so that you don't have to get rid of everything. You just have to kind of make some adjustments so that you keep the things that make you feel linked um, to that kind of ongoing relationship. And and those linking objects can be really meaningful.
0: Yeah. It, you know, for years, uh, I did not have a picture of my mother uh, yeah. because it was too painful mm-hmm. to, to, to look at her. I literally had to forget because I felt I couldn't do the the work I couldn't do I couldn't carry on it it just it was very difficult and and it's only you know in the last few years I have a picture of her in the office and in my home office and so and had I known some of the those tools i I mean I don't have any uh I don't think I have anything physical that mm-hmm. but that just having that picture just really helps me honor her mm-hmm. and not forget mm-hmm. so
1: yeah well, and I think it's natural right because if initially You look at a picture and it provokes tremendous pain of course you would avoid that pain right Um, but I guess what we're talking about with regards to this task work is realizing that part of this journey involves intentional approach towards that which is painful and it's what we call grief work so that we can begin to integrate the experience of loss with our life because pictures are incredibly precious aren't they Mm -hmm. and And if we interpret that initial surge of pain to be bad, there's a huge consequence, because by putting away the memories, we put away the love. And there's a fracture in us if we have to do that. So even though at first it's very painful, the outcome is the opposite of that, because you actually feel connected. So I hear what you're saying as you look at her picture now. It brings you joy. It brings you comfort, right?
0: Mm-hmm. It took
1: you a while to get there, and so it would have been helpful if you'd have known it so that it wouldn't have been so long a distance. But you do what you do, right? Yeah. <laughs> you have well, to cut yourself some slack.
0: Well, the, the thing is, um, I yeah, I don't know if I talked much about her uh, after she had passed. It was also busy time. I was in medical school trying mm-hmm. to... It was perfect for the masculine energy because it's. I had to complete do do do, do, do. Mm -hmm. you know, ignore ignore ignore, and so that was good for to get the job done, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, only later, you know, I was able. I talk about and I think about her, and I talk to my daughter about her, show her pictures. And you know, if if I said if my mom, if your grandmother was here, she'd be doing craft with you. She loved craft just yeah. as much as you do. Yeah. I think that's where you get your love of craft from—is from her. So it 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 does uh, it it does honor that, and you, you, it's kind of a. a I think um, you had talked about this at the workshop. Is that you know, say for instance, if a parent has lost a child. And they walk into a room um, and the other people who know that they've lost a child they don't they feel guilty or they feel reserved to talk about their child playing baseball and things like that mm-hmm
1: uh, so there's a silence right yeah yeah there's and sometimes what happens is that people's grief is disenfranchised for that level of protection right um, and so the the component with regards to disenfranchised grief is that the less that it's acknowledged, the more profound your grief reaction is.
0: So, th- though it's better to talk about, say, what your child did, you know, even though they they lost their child, or well, you know, yeah, and even because th- I think there would be a hesitancy. Oh, if I talk about my son or my daughter, it might make her. F- or him feel bad. Right. But you're saying that's not the case.
1: Well, you know, I, I sometimes have very well-meaning people ask me this question. Like, I, I don't want to talk about it because for fear that they're not thinking about it or that I'm going to trigger them, I always have to remind people, oh, they're thinking about it. Yeah. You never have to worry about it. You
0: never have to worry about yeah. it. Yeah.
1: It may not be here. It might be over to the side. But that it's always present, because we are the sum of all of those who have touched us, right? And so when somebody who has really shaped who we've become, when they pass away, they remain with us in a different way. Mm-hmm. At first, it's filled with pain, but as time goes by, it continues to be a reference point. So when I hear you talking about how you speak with your daughter, she knows her grandmother. Mm-hmm. And she never met her. Right. Right? Right. And isn't that what we want? We want to kind of maintain a a level of legacy that carries that person's love and and spirit forward. We have the capacity for that. It's, It's not like, you know, we don't have room for anybody else in our lives if we carry them in our hearts. I often say, we've been able to kind of keep Elvis alive. Why can't we keep our loved ones alive? Right?
0: Well... Uh, You know, I remember one thing you said, you know, we can have joy and suffering. uh, You can hold both at the same time. So, because you can't be in pain and grief and suffering all that time, and it doesn't mean uh, that you don't love them, but it also doesn't mean that you can't have joy either, right? Yeah,
1: you know... um This language has existed in our society forever. In fact, when you read the (coughs) writings of Cahil Gibran, which is dating to the 1700s, joy and sorrow is all over his poetry, right? So I think that sometimes with our modernism, we oversimplify our complexity and say you either have to be one or the other. The one thing that is pardon the expression, gospel for me, is the understanding that we can coexist with both joy and sorrow. And here's the other caveat. One doesn't cancel out the other. Mm. They just coexist,
0: right? Well, I would think that sometimes people may feel guilty to have joy, even if there's been some loss. And if they do have moments of laughter or joy that they may not want other people to see it because they, oh, well, how much do they really...
1: They may be misinterpreted, right? Right.
0: They may be misinterpreted.
1: Yes. And so it's a real struggle for bereaved individuals who have been so bereft, so broken, and then all of a sudden they find themselves in a different situation and they're laughing at a joke for the first time. Yeah. And those cheek muscles haven't been used that way so you actually feel that and led and followed by a sense of is this okay should i be able to laugh when i am so broken i'd like to suggest that that kind of guilt actually just comes from the ego determining what you're feeling is different and you know how it is. The ego doesn't like anything different. So if it's different, it's got to be wrong. So it's an easy translation. We can easily talk to people about kind of recognizing where these impulses and where these feelings come from, right? I must admit, I missed one piece in the Alan, or the um, William Warden task theory that I think is really important. We haven't talked about number four. And number four is taking the energy that it takes to grieve and placing it back into living. In other words, it's about reinvesting in life. And, and so that's work, because you don't always feel like you want to invest in life. In fact, most bereaved individuals are angry at life. But part of the grief work, the task, is to force yourself at times give yourself permission at times to invest in life. And that happens in so many different ways. Uh, When I'm working with clients and I'm talking to them about, some people really do appreciate the theoretical frameworks. That's how they function. So when I'm able to kind of offer these theoretical frameworks, I'm able to say, and you're already completing task number four because you're here. Right? Nice. But they could also just be going for a haircut. That's an investment in life. So it's really about kind of helping to see in baby steps ways in which they can immerse themselves in living again rather than just existing.
0: One thing as a parent, uh, and I'm assuming parents think about this, is that, you know, how do children and teens, how, how do people, how do they, look at death differently I I know Mm. I was concerned when my father when he died at 77 and my daughter she was about five I I didn't know how to explain that or what she would think right and uh, so children teens adults elderly people how do they experience it
1: it's, it's incredibly important to recognize that even though it's one tiny word that we're talking about, it's so complex. And grief is very developmental. So it really depends on um, age and stage of where you are in your life. Age in terms of cognitive growth um, and development, in terms of... Um, being able to understand abstract concepts, um, and development, meaning where you are in your life cycle that will allow for this this grief work to take place. So we know that children under the age of 13, 14 will have different developmental stages that will help them to understand death under the age of five or six, they cannot understand the permanence of death. It's abstract and we don't teach children algebra because they can't understand algebra at that age and so therefore the same principle applies with regards to death. They will hear the words, they will echo the words that are being told to them, but they will then a week later say, well when is he coming back? Or Well, why can't we just go to heaven and see them, right? These are all abstract concepts. And so um, children, um, again, struggle with the permanence of things at that age. And their primary need is to have consistency and um, a sense of predictability in their environment and that's not happening because likely the adults around are brokenhearted and so they lack consistency and they lack, per, you know, predictability because it, everything's in flux. And so children um, demonstrate emotional distress over those things more so than the loss of the loved one because they always expect them to come back. So then we go up to the ages of 8, 9 or so, around 9, 10, um, and what happens is that they begin to understand the permanency of death, but they also start to kind of look at death as a bad thing, and that something bad happens when people die. So this is where people can, or it, children can begin to have nightmares because they start to kind of generalize that bad thing, and this is where the boogie monster kind of comes in, right? Like it was, and, and there's... um. Uh, you know, magical thinking that happens. It's not uncommon for kids to say, well, it was because I didn't eat my spaghetti that Daddy died. Or if I had not broken that toy, Daddy would be here. So it's not uncommon for kids to try to make sense of how something so bad can happen, and they often over-identify with themselves. Mm. Um, And then we go into the next developmental cycle, which is the adolescent period. In the adolescent period, Whereas, you know, sometimes they get a bad rap, but teenagers are highly spiritual. They're looking for the meaning of life. They're uh, they're trying to make sense of life and what happens around them. So they're deeply feeling people. When a tragedy happens, and particularly if, if it's within their peers, they are deeply bereft by that loss because they're trying to make sense of what's going on in the world, and um, Then you go on to emerging adults, where part of their function is to kind of, you know, figure out who they are, um, what their level of industry is, can they form intimate relationships. If a death occurs, then it compromises their ability to trust that there is a world out there that they can trust in, that, that relationships can remain, that people don't just die. So it has implications in how they invest in life. And then you go into the adult age, and 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 for us adults, we, because we're, you know, primarily done developing psychologically. Like we kind of know who we are. We have our sense of industry. We've got relationships. So, the grieving process um, has more latitude. People have a tendency of grieving more intensely in their adult years because there isn't anything else standing in the way, right? Last cycle, the senior years, tend to be a little bit more compromised in being able to express emotion because their bodies are compromised. And so to feel intense emotion um, is risky because it can elevate your heart rate, it can elevate your blood pressure. And it's not that they're doing that. It's like our system seems to regulate the emotional output. Not uncommon for me to hear people saying things like, it doesn't seem to affect Grandma. I don't know why Grandma's not reacting. I thought Grandma would be much more upset. I don't think psychologically that Grandma could get there because it would compromise a survival.
0: Do you think that happens at a subconscious level? Correct, but, yeah, yes. So it's, that it's
1: our internal gauge. right? Okay. It's our psychology that kind of determines. Much like, as I say, in young adults, they... Um, um, they have the ability and children to compartmentalize so effectively that when they're playing hockey they're playing hockey and right. when they're grieving they're grieving so it's not they're not kind of consciously compartmentalizing it's their psychology that is able to separate these aspects so that it doesn't compromise their development interesting right
0: yeah well what about the crisis reaction you know there's the when there's a loss mm-hmm. um, there's a phase to that you know the first 24 to 48 hours and then you know that's the reactive phase and then can you remind me about that
1: yeah well you know again we talk about grief as a small word but that means just so many things um, when people experience a loss depending on the nature of the death, will then result in what level of crisis that person is going to be in. Um, And we can kind of interchange trauma and crisis here, right? Um, Because really it's the stress hormones that we're, we're speaking of. If it's a sudden and unexpected violent death, there will be a high level of crisis, trauma, reaction, right? if it's a, a loss that has been a, as a result of a palliative care situation where there has been some anticipation that that person is going to die, the low, it's going to be a low level of crisis and trauma, but there's still going to be crisis and trauma. Many people will tell you, even though I knew it was happening when they took their last breath, I couldn't believe it. It took my breath away. Right? So we're never really fully prepared. We think we are, mm-hmm. but when the time comes, it provokes that crisis, right? So again, think of it on a spectrum, if you will. There's a high degree and a low degree. Um, what we can tell you is that um, in the first 48 hours or so, people will have um, these stress hormones pumping through their veins, the cortisol and the adrenaline, and it serves them well because they're able to put one foot in front of the next. It dampens their emotions ever so slightly so that they can figure out who on the list they want to call. Um, Within 24 hours, they're essentially entering into a financial arrangement with some funeral home, which is big, Um, but because of this stress hormone, Um, uh, component, it is dampening the surge of acute emotions, making them actually pretty competent and able to put together the most remarkable memorial services, right? Mm -hmm. Think about the number of times we've gone to a funeral and it has been so meaningful. And families only have three days to do that.
0: I've always been amazed by that. uh, Right? That how is that possible? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's because. So that's because of the cortisol levels. Because they've got those cortisol levels and the adrenaline levels. And so those those actually create a level of competence that. And again, I think we've evolved into using these systems um, in our society, anyways, because. I can certainly tell you that there are many other societies in which there's a huge demonstration of emotion right off the bat. But perhaps within that society, the norms have accommodated that. In our society, we need to be in control in order to honor our loved one's legacy. And it appears we can do that, which Hmm. is pretty remarkable. So then what happens is that over the course of weeks, days and weeks, those cortisol levels reduce, So the adrenals start to neutralize. And as they do, then emotions begin to become more and more permanent um, and more acute. And so it takes a good six to eight weeks for your adrenals to neutralize. Again, think about that on a spectrum, right? If it's in a, a violent, sudden death, we're looking more like eight weeks out, eight to ten weeks out. Um, and so the acute period of grieving is actually somewhere between two to about six to seven months. And that is so contrary to what most people expect, right? Mm -hmm. Most people expect grief to kind of occur almost on a linear level, kind of like if you break a bone, heal, calcifies slowly. With grief it's a bit backwards, in that you feel numb, you feel dissociated, you feel disconnected for the first couple of months, and then you begin to feel the impact and the permanency of that loss in those months after. And so it's an acute period because it is during this period that fewer casseroles are arriving, Fewer phone calls are coming in. Now that blue box definitely has to be filled. (laughs) Can't put it off anymore. And the reality of that person's absence begin to manifest in so many different ways. So you can't escape it. What t- when you
0: say blue box, you're talking about like the recycling?
1: I'm talking about the ordinary tasks of, oh, okay. of housework, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> the okay, okay. the okay. recycling,
0: right? Okay, right, right.
1: Many people speak of that because it's often, you know, oftentimes it's the partner that was had that job, you know? When you're in a relationship, you divide and conquer, and you quickly find out there are tasks that you've never done. Right. That now you have to
0: do. Right, yeah. right. Um you know one thing that was is very helpful is about how our sleep is affected mm. I, when we we go through the different cycles mm-hmm. and i really like the analogy of our the file folder and how we can uh, use that technique to make it easier uh, i've actually used that also with journaling i've mm-hmm. told patients about that mm. uh, how to decompress it could you recap that for the listeners and uh, my pleasure uh, that whole sleep how it happens what what it what happens in that time why do we stay awake etc yeah
1: yeah it's one of the first things that i try to um, educate clients that i serve um, is on the sleep cycle Um, and again it's it's not that hard to understand but i don't think that we have done a very good job of of getting to know how sleep works so um, first of all it's understanding that we sleep in cycles 90 minute cycles and after 90 minutes or within those 90 minutes we go through different levels of consciousness um, we enter into restorative sleep and then we enter into REM sleep and REM sleep The first REM sleep is only about 15, 10, 15 minutes long. Then we go into another 90-minute cycle with restorative sleep in there. And then the next REM sleep doubling to maybe 20, 25 minutes and so on. Throughout the night, this is what we do. Our REM sleep increases, but we have these increments, these cycles, right? Once people understand that, then they begin to kind of master their own kind of sleeplessness by understanding what wakes them up. So, most common for people who are newly bereaved is to, and again, I can almost finish the sentence for them, they say, I go to sleep at 11, and then I wake up, it's like 1.30, 2 o'clock every night. And they're trying to figure out, what do I do? I've gone to my doctor to tell them about this. I give them sleeping pills. But I can get to sleep, I just can't stay asleep. And that's a telltale mark of high levels of adrenals, right? Like, so your adrenaline levels are so pumped that people are not able to get to sleep. But once your adrenals are neutralized, that's not the problem. The problem is the overload of the brain. So you you know, many of your listeners will know this as well. Um, we have learned so much more about what happens in our sleep. We now know what happens in REM sleep. What happens in REM sleep is the brain sorting through the day's information and then consolidating it with existing information. So I literally think about our brain like a computer and all the file folders and the files. And so this happening, this loss, is so new that it's like the brain doesn't even know what file folder to put it in because there's no reference, right? Um, During REM sleep, as the brain reviews the day's occurrences, it's looking for a way to consolidate it. But given the fact that there has been so much happening in that person's life, I imagine that there is a firework of activity that actually jolts people into the awake state in the second REM sleep and it kind of falls in line with the, with regards to the timing. So again, if I'm able to teach this to clients, then they're able to kind of go, okay, so there's a reason for it. And that's step number one. People just need to know there's a reason for this, okay.
0: And the second step.
1: And then the second step is to say, now, if we're making the assumption that you are awoken because there's an overload, what if we help the brain unload some of that organization before you go to bed so that it lessens the pressure during that second REM sleep. So what I counsel people to do is to get a sheet of paper, not a pretty journal, but a sheet of paper, and to literally write down their whole day's events in detail. I woke up at this time. I did this. And then I did this. And I can't believe I ran into this person. And then I saw this on the commercial. And then I saw this on the radio every single thing that they can think of to write and write and write. Point form, it doesn't have to make sense. Just write the whole day as much as you can remember. And then, take that piece of paper, rip it up into little pieces, throw it in the garbage and say, there, I'm done with that day.
0: And that lightens the cognitive load.
1: It appears, my experience with most people, takes a good three days of them doing that, and then they start to regulate their sleep
0: so at least three days of doing that yeah because I've shared that technique with people who just have trouble sleeping they say their brain is too full they just keep thinking about too many things and and they have found that has helped them Mm -hmm. just because so we must just be processing all the little things that are maybe you know not hugely important through the day but and we're still processing Because the
1: caution here, it's not necessarily to provoke emotion at the end of the day, because then that will create another set of variables. It's really about mechanically reviewing the day, dumping it on that paper, ripping it up, because that's very symbolic, saying my day is done, doing some rituals around calming down and getting ready for bed, and allowing then for your brain to kind of do the rest of the work that you didn't do.
0: So you would write every, like, I brushed my teeth? Brushed you know. my
1: teeth, whatever comes right. to your mind. Whatever
0: comes to your mind. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Um, and, and and then again, ripping it and and making that a ritual for completion. I think the reason that I notice a three-day phenomena in terms of it being becoming more consistent is that we also have to tend to the circadian rhythm and the fact that if you've had... Bad sleep habits, whereby that becomes a part of a pattern, where the brain now just kind of naturally wakes up, whether or not it's the REM sleep. It takes a while to undo that. So, but it's good to hear that uh, some of your patients have recognized, that like almost at the uh, right from the top, that it starts to help them.
0: Well, e- even if there's no loss, it's just a way of yeah. um, decompressing, mm-hmm. and I think. That's part of a good nighttime ritual is decompressing. But
1: so. I, I'm, I'm wondering, like, do you find that it helps to, uh, to help them understand why? Like in terms of the sleep cycles, that, that sleep education, that sleep hygiene? Um, I, I,
0: under, I don't know if everybody really understands the why of it. Mm. They, because when you go into REM, non-REM, May be complicated I remember it' was even complicated when I when I was studying it in medical school so just just trying to remember that but if they're like I find most people are generally saying okay just t- tell me what to do okay mm-hmm. and if if that works I'll give it a try mm-hmm. and and I have told them you know stick with it for at least five days mm-hmm. don't uh, you know don't put any judgment it's not like regular journaling where mm-hmm. you're um, you're trying to process your feelings or anything. It's just very boring kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I use the the example you say: it's, it's, it's your, your brain is trying to file these things away, mm-hmm. and you just have more more stuff to file than mm-hmm. than the average person.
1: So that's uh, giving them an explanation, right? In terms yeah. of like that's the function of REM and the right. fact that they have these REM cycles. Yeah. Like I just I find that that if we're able to kind of find uh, the words that make sense for people, that they become much more intentional about this commitment to help themselves. It's the same kind of principle as, you know, most people, and I hear this often, will say, yeah, I'm always being told to go for a walk. I don't want to go for a walk. What's the point in going for a walk? I don't have any interest in going for a walk. But if I'm talking about the benefits of a walk by saying, you know what, People who are uh, in distress are lazy breathers. We don't breathe well when we're in distress. The one thing that is a for sure, you cannot walk without breathing. So when you go for a walk, one of the benefits is that it forces you to breathe well. And when people understand that there's an a higher mode of you know, an actual reason why this would be beneficial—they're more likely to engage because now they have intent.
0: That makes sense. Um, walking is one of the best meditative exercises as well because you, it forces you to breathe. Correct. And you're, you're out in nature. Yeah. So I'm a big fan of, of walking. Anybody who lives in my neighborhood knows that I'm walking. Right. and i, and I and 'll walk five ten minutes just yeah. to, because it just relaxes me, it does something mm-hmm. and I think it probably just comes down to breathing so
1: it 's breathing and it 's the bilateral movements right, right. so when we 're doing bilateral movements we 're stimulating both the left and the right hemisphere, and again it's it 's scientific, but it 's very accessible. people are mm-hmm. like they 're sponges when it comes to okay, I can do this, I can do this, right. You know, the same thing goes for, like, hydration, how important it is to drink plenty of water. But if we don't explain why, then they might kind of go, oh, yeah. But if people understand, well, stress is a huge dehydrator. Think about the number of times you've had to kind of do public speaking and you get pasties, like, you just, everything dries up. So this is the most stressful time in your life and your body just needs to be quenched. And so, no less than a liter of water a day.
0: Well, I say three to four liters. We well, get, that would be yeah, good, yes. So, so, <laughs> i uh, <mean> for that. <laughs> well, the average person should drink at least three to four liters. For sure, And yeah. And every coffee, tea, alcohol, or juice you drink, you've got to drink another glass of water. Yeah. I'm a big proponent of hydration. So,
1: And our brain is a tissue that needs that hydration, yep. right? So if we don't do that, then how can we problem solve problem solve our way out of an emotional experience when our brain is deprived of both oxygen and hydration right
0: well even in the it's ironic in that in the time of a loss mm-hmm. that's when more than ever that's when we need to be doing the the right habits we need to be eating properly trying to sleep better and walk and to try to process that but that's right. often the time when people lose weight because they're not eating. That's right. And it probably th- it is the thing that they need to do more.
1: I think that that's probably where we have made such great strides in this area of of grief and bereavement is understanding it's not just an emotional experience. It's a deeply physical experience. Okay. And and although we cannot fix the wound in people's hearts, we can give them tools to help carry that brokenness. And so some of these basic teachings are tangible, they're doable for people, and it's going to help them to be able to carry their sorrow.
0: I'm all about tools and strategies because and ways to... Things that you can use. Yeah, I, I think as clinicians and as indi- individuals, the more we know uh, how we can help ourselves, correct, and especially in different times and different circumstances. Mm-hmm. So, um, but if you can't help yourself if you don't have any knowledge about what's going to work. Correct. Right. We may think let's do this, but that's that's not helpful at all. Correct. Yeah. So that's.
1: And it's very empowering for people who feel very broken and helpless. If you say, okay, your homework is, you're going to drink water. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You're going to go for a walk. Go for a walk.
0: (laughs) And that's easy to do. Pay Uh,
1: attention to your breath.
0: (laughs) I think that's easy to do, right? Absolutely. uh, And that's something easily a clinician can do. Yes. You know, they may say, refer somebody for counseling, but say, you know... If I can give you one suggestion mm-hmm. or two suggestions, mm-hmm. walk and drink water, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and make sure you eat. Mm-hmm. Easy enough to do. Mm-hmm. Easy enough to do. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and again, accessible for the client. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. What are some factors that uh, inhibit uh, healing, like or grief? So that's the end of part one. I hope you've enjoyed that. Join me next week where we'll introduce part two of this conversation. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with someone. Or if you think somebody could find this information helpful, please share. Thank you so much. And I will see you at the next episode.